Hello and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I am Nathan Cole. I am Akiko Taramoto. And that's it. It's just the two of us this time. We've had a couple episodes lately with um, some very special guests, uh, especially cellists. Yeah. I guess it goes along with my theory that violinists aren't really friends with other violinists. <laughs> well, we're married to other violinists, but just not I friends. I said friends. <laughs> That's true. It took us a while to become friends. Yeah, right? And because of that, I thought that maybe this episode could be a little bit more violin-centric. You know, we talk a lot about the orchestra life, playing an orchestra. Obviously, stand partners refers to the orchestra life, but sometimes we can nerd out a little bit on violin stuff. And so I thought, and I think you agreed, we could talk about uh, scales and maybe even etudes today. Yeah, I've, I'm probably mostly going to be your sounding board because you're such an expert in this area and this is so your thing to talk about technical work. Yeah, you say that, but you practice scales too. I mean, we'll get into it, but yeah, not like <laughs> you. Yes, we will. <laughs> A lot of times people think of scales, especially as kind of like uh, eating your vegetables, right? You know, it's something you, you have to do, you feel like you should do, you're going to get sick or die or something yeah. if you don't. What's like going to the gym? It's like doing, like doing your squats or something. I think it's like going to the gym used to be, right? You mean I mean, like now going to the gym like is fun, yard? right? And you do fun classes and you have awesome exercises with ropes and... I mean, I wouldn't call it fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, we should ask you because you're, you're the one that actually goes. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe it's fun. I just, maybe I'm just taking it for granted or something. But um, so it always kind of reminds right. me of that. Like sort of, yeah. Like if I feel like if I don't go and do that stuff, something vague health threat starts hanging over your head. Sort of feels like that with scales. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I mean, do you, do you often think of the benefits of going to the gym or is it more like, yeah, if I don't do it, something bad may happen. It's both, right? I think anybody would say it's a little bit of both. I mean, you hope, and I think actually, I think as you get older, it is more like staving off some unseen disaster because like you're not, your body doesn't respond sort of immediately the way it used to and it might take like months of doing, you know, the stuff instead of weeks or whatever to really see results. So, it takes, it takes a long time that I feel like on the day-to-day -day basis, you're, you're really thinking, oh, you know, this is one more day that I've postponed my untimely death. The inevitable. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there's a parallel to the violin. <laughs> Every Probably day won't you die scales. if you don't hear scales, but maybe. <laughs> Your listeners will die. You'll die of shame on stage. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think it's a good thing to talk about actually because it's hard to do anything if your only motivator is guilt at not doing it. Oh, that's the problem. So, I think we'll, and we'll talk about what the benefits of scales are and maybe even how to put a more positive spin on them. Etudes, we can lump those in there too. Don't you think some people think of scales almost like um, a kind of therapy too? Almost like a meditation or something that they need to do to start the day? I think so. I mean, I'm not really one of those people. So, I think I've heard about those people. But usually, I mean, I do hear you play a scale I mean, to start the practice day. It's true that, you know, I probably feel like, yeah, I, the first thing I play should probably be a scale. And even we have our, our six and a half year old daughter in the habit now, right? She, she launches right into the G major scales and she picks up her violin just yeah. to get it over with. But um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like it's some kind of ritualistic like, hey, now I'm... It's like you're just setting your brain up for, for practice. Yeah. 
And I've gone back and forth on that, but but definitely I think it can serve that function too. So we've got a fitness aspect, a meditative aspect, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot this whole year, actually this whole calendar year, because around the new year, I actually sent out a, a survey to you guys. And if you've been getting my emails since then, then you would have gotten a link to this survey. And especially to those of you who went ahead and filled that out, that was awesome. Thank you so much. More than 1400 of you did. And yeah, one of the things I wanted to know was topics you wanted to hear more about and maybe even topics you wanted some help with. And consistently, you know, no matter what repertoire you were working on, no matter what playing level you felt that you were on, everybody wanted to hear more about scales and etudes. And, you know, you wanted videos. I don't know if you wanted podcasts, but you're getting one now. <laughs> um, and that really spoke to me because first of all, it impressed me. I thought, wow, you know, it's not just me that thinks this stuff is important. You know, I did resolve to put that into action and, and yeah, spend some more time looking, well, examining myself too, how I relate to scales and etudes. And so I can't believe it's taken this long for me to get you on record. You're, uh, what's your relationship with scales and etudes? <laughs> You're shrugging your shoulders already. Well, you know, you probably, we've covered my insecurities about my sort of technical solidity. And I think this is one of those things that's contributed to that insecurity because I never, I mean, I scales, I did, and I had a scale class when I was at Juilliard pre-college and in Aspen, they always, you always had to sign up for scale class. So wow. I did that. I, I almost feel like I remember Robert Chatton teaching one, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> but, you know, it was the older, like the delays, older students who would do it to, you know, they, I guess they get paid to teach the kids, oh, not okay. even teach, you know, just take us through them and maybe show how they would do it or so, yeah, I have a pretty distinct memory of being on the fourth floor at Juilliard where the practice rooms were and meeting up with a bunch of other kids my age and going in a practice room with somebody and then playing scales and we all like we all had to play scales or something like that. I am going to come back to that because I, I want to hear more details about that. I actually never had a class like that. So, I think that's really cool. It could um, have been really cool. I mean, I think if we were all like super dedicated to it, it was just it was at that age, it was just like, ugh, you know. It's a tough drudgery. Yeah. There are probably a couple of us who were into it, and then the rest of us are just like checking it off. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say that describes me for much of my life. <laughs> Which is hard to believe because now, I mean, you're like the scale guru. Like, I, you know, you're the person who sort of inspired me to try to get back into scales and not, you know, and thirds and sixths and octaves and stuff. Well, maybe it's like you said, a realization that. I want to stave off the inevitable decline of, of playing, decline of career. But it's been a lot of fun too. And not, I mean, it's, it's a journey for me that started years ago, not just this year, but 2019 is when I finally put it more into action in terms of working with a lot of other violinists on it. So that when I had the chance to design my dream program, the Virtuoso Master Course, and uh, we're winding down the first one of those that started back in, in May with a group of 20 really dedicated violinists. And we've been having a blast, you know, working through scale routines and, and the different etudes. And I, I really based that program around scales and etudes because in that program, I teach a, a whole practice framework, you know, starts with a, the right mindset and then teaches tools kind of like, yeah, you open up your toolbox and your tools are those scales and etudes and different 
techniques on the violin and then and finally the practice methods though that's the third part of the framework but yeah those tools really being based around the scales and etudes because once you hone those you can really play anything sounds like i should probably go do that right now <laughs> i'll i won't even make you pay no but uh, the 20 violinists i've been working with and violists i should say now uh, they've been getting some fantastic results it's been a lot of fun a lot of great breakthroughs and um if you want to know more about because uh, i'll be offering this again and with a a new group of players. It's going to be a lot of fun starting in the new year of 2020. So just go to standpartnersforlife.com slash VMC. So that stands for Virtuoso Master Course. So standpartnersforlife.com slash VMC. And uh, you'll see a lot more about it. And we can have a talk about how you can work with me on it. So, you know, I say it's been fun, but definitely wasn't always for me. Let's go back to I guess back to that scale class, I mean, was that the first time you had played scales? No, certainly not. Okay. Because, you know, for me, I didn't play scales until I've been playing I a say lot of that, years. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I just can't imagine that was, I mean, like I said, our daughter is doing scales now and she's only six and a half. I'm sure I must have done scales before. I mean, this is, I'm talking about like when I'm 12 or 13 or something at this point. Right. But, you know, I, I was, I would say, yeah, nine or 10 before I played any scales. Maybe yeah, I mean, so it could have been for me too, but, you know, scale class was probably not the first time. Okay. Well, what do you remember from the beginning playing scales or doing any kind of studies or etudes? I just did some etudes. I didn't do nearly as much as you, I'm assuming. I'm, you know, I, I have my old copy of Kreutzer somewhere. What was before Kreutzer? What, what comes before Kreutzer? Uh, I mean, sometimes Schreidek or... Schreidek. I had Schreidek. I think it was pretty minimal, which sounds strange and probably any other delay students out there would really contradict me. But I, I have a feeling it was mostly Sevchik, Schreidek. Sometimes... Actually, mostly Sevchik, some Schreidek, then Kreutzer, and then, of course, Paganini. Yeah. What about Wolfart? That's another early... No. No, we never did that. Matzas. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I saw other people carrying it around. So, I feel like I, I remember like what it looked like, but I don't I don't think I ever did them. I, I, I didn't do this either. I feel like the goal for the delay students was to get to Pagnini, like ASAP. Everything else is sort of like detour. <laughs> well, Yoast, something to be does that count? Oh, I had Yoast at some point. Yeah. Right. yeah. I, I might venture to say that you did actually more than me at that age. And in fact, I'm almost certain... Yeah, but I staged my revolt like right around when I was supposed to be learning Paganini. That was the I just, that was the, the breaking point. We talk we often talk about like what was the point where I just thought can't do this anymore. And definitely the Paganini concerto. This is really sad. Paganini concerto was one of those moments where I was like, this is I can't take this. Like this is nonstop things that I can't do. <laughs> yeah. And the I, like, caprices were just like mini versions of it, obviously. So, yeah, actually, I had that same thought. I mean, I, I think the way I kind of phrased it to myself with the Paganini concerto was, yeah, nonstop stuff that's really hard. Um, yeah. If it was just really hard, that'd be one thing for me. It was like nonstop. I can't go on playing. Well, partly I think it's because your attitude is if it's not perfect, that means you can't do it. <sighs> Yeah, but and you know, I mean, for me, I, my I, teachers weren't like, oh, keep going. It sounds good. They were like, that sounds horrible. You need to fix that wow. like every other measure. So Mr. Gallimere at Curtis was like that for me. And but other teachers of mine were a little bit more the, you know, keep going. 
variety and I knew it didn't sound good and it was difficult. So, yeah, I agree that oftentimes what happens is we get tossed this repertoire as we're growing up that contains things that we can't really do at that point. And so, looking back... But I mean, I was surrounded by kids who could and that was the other discouraging thing. Yeah. You know, I didn't really have that. So, and there was no internet back then, so I couldn't very well. <laughs> Luckily, you, you I couldn't, couldn't go find out about and, those people. <laughs> I know. It was great. I had Perlman. Oh, in another way, like, the well, internet has ruined our lives. Well, yeah, I, I really wonder about, you know, if Hannah keeps playing violin, what's, what's she going to do when she is able to do a search and find well, I mean, what the other six-year-olds are doing? I mean, watching her parents play things <laughs> much harder than... <laughs> Minuet one doesn't seem to have discouraged her. So that's true. But you know, I think that's that's the real argument for learning skills in scales and etudes so that when you get to them in the repertoire, you you feel like you can, you know, I've got this. And yeah, you have to put it into a musical context and all that. But it's no fun being thrown a piece where you've got six different things you can't do and you're expected to play it in tune and fast and all that. I mean, to keep the gym analogy going, it does sort of feel like, you know, when I go to the gym and they're like, okay, today's the 100 workout and you're like, uh-oh. And like, yeah, 100. That sounds terrible. I it does. Like 100 push-ups, is. 100, you know, jump lunges, 100. And you're like, I no, I can't do that. That's how I felt like anytime I tried to get super technical on the violin. So. Right. And you're still learning how to do a lunge or a push-up. Yeah, and then they say do 100 yeah. of them. Yeah, or I can do like five, but you know, I can't do a hundred. <laughs> so, you need that push-up etude. Right. So, what is that? I don't know. We'll no, get to maybe that Maybe it's just doing push-ups. <laughs> Building them up. <laughs> While playing the violin. Maybe push-up is as far broken down as it can be. <laughs> you don't need the, <laughs> the baby steps of the push-up. But yeah, I, I think, you know, as violinists, we sometimes forget about the violin exercises that are like the push-up. We're always wanting to do the the clean and jerk and the the clean and jerk <laughs> all the all the combination <laughs> exercises um to go google that now <laughs> yeah scales for me i have a vague memory of when i was finishing the suzuki books so you know i grew up suzuki did all 10 books and those who know those books will remember that book 9 is simply the Mozart fifth concerto in A major and book 10 is Mozart's fourth concerto in D major. That's the whole book? Yeah. Isn't that plagiarism? Well, the whole thing is he wrote some tunes, well, but all true, the rest are... that's true, but I mean, are... part of the method is supposed to be like his curation of the pieces, but if he just shoves a concerto in there, don't you feel like it's like, like a bait and switch? Um, there, <laughs> It does smack a little of laziness to... Or maybe it's like you're lazy, you shouldn't be playing Suzuki anymore. <laughs> I think maybe, yeah, maybe that's partly the message. <laughs> like, go out and like, learn some real music. <laughs> I think you're all growns up. <laughs> if you want Suzuki Book 9, fine, here it is. It's called Mozart. <laughs> How about Suzuki Book 11? It's, <laughs> you know, Brahms. Um, yeah, I, that's why I wonder what percentage of Suzuki kids have completed Books 9 and 10. And yeah, so, you must have gotten like a gold trophy or something. Well, I, my reward was a graduation recital. It <laughs> <That> doesn't <laughs> and, sound like a reward. <laughs> it sounds like a punishment. And my Suzuki teacher did a fantastic job, Donna Weehee, and she really kept things fun and engaging. And, you know, one of the things I'll mention is that although Suzuki doesn't have etudes as such, although there's a piece in book one called Etude. I, heard, know, it, I heard it tonight. 
Oh, yeah. Tonight. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Thanks for practicing with her, by the way. <laughs> it's my way of telling you. You know, part of a great Suzuki teacher's job is to devise these games and fun things that are basically mini etudes to keep students engaged and to work on weaknesses, which is really what it's all about. Yeah, by the time I got to books 9 and 10, the Mozart concertos, there was a lot I, I couldn't really do well on the violin and certainly not. There were tools for making music that I didn't really have or, or just hadn't developed. So, you know, even though scales aren't exactly part of the Suzuki books um, in any organized way, my teacher did introduce the at least the D major three octave scale for when I was working on the D major concerto. So, you know, when I went to my second teacher, Dan Mason, I was really only three playing. octaves. Yeah. Hmm. Um, a lot. Oh, yeah. Because well, you kind of need that to play yeah. <laughs> all of the Mozart fourth concerto. I mean, the, the Joachim cadenza goes up to a high D, yeah. for example. So, how old were you at this point? 10. 10. No wonder. Okay. But that was the only... Wait, no wonder what? No, I mean, no, and that's young. To, I think that's... I don't remember. I suppose I was playing three octave scales then, but... I bet you were considering what else you were playing. Mm, maybe. I mean, are you thinking it was just But I didn't play about scale? certain four or five. You know, <laughs> I'm not even going to say one. It's so embarrassing. But... Well, I probably shouldn't have. Yeah, but I didn't have to, you know, I didn't need those notes yet. <laughs> but yeah, I was doing it in that one key. And that's all the only scale work I had done when I came to, to Dan Mason. And that's, I think, a better answer now is what Hannah's doing, for example, playing some scales right from the beginning and getting used to it and even building habits like she is of leaving fingers down as you especially, <laughs> you're laughing already. Actually, I think one, this one episode is just things. about all my shortcomings, what? if I'm honest. You don't, don't play a scale by putting every individual finger down and lifting all the well, other ones up. Not everyone, but... <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's great to do much earlier on. So, would you go back to that scale class now and tell me what you remember about that? So, this you said was when you were 12 or 13 and at Juilliard pre-college? Yeah. But I guess I'm also thinking at Aspen we had to do it, you know, because it was still a delay thing. Say, uh, similar teachers, a lot of the same... Same group of students, right? Yes. I mean, basically the same people. So, yeah, another one of my... I definitely remember having this guy who's now in the Vienna Phil. He was one of my scale teachers. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't really remember. I think we just, like, hung out with him and he was fun. They got a crush on him. <laughs> I was going to say, slowly, more of the studies. <laughs> more. I don't remember anything about the scales. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so sometimes when I watch the Vienna Philharmonic progress in the game, that was my scale teacher. <laughs> yeah. My scale crush. My scale, yeah. Maybe, did you 14. Have, so now, did you have a crush on him because he was so good at scales? <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe no that's offense. one of the hidden benefits. <laughs> that's right. Having, having a bunch of 14-year-olds. Well, I think he was 26, so he probably didn't consider that a real bonus. I'll try to get come up with a memory that's more relevant to actually playing the violin. Sorry, no, I don't. I, I really think it was it was just. I think we mostly just tried to kill time by distracting teachers' stories or just talking to each other, and you know, and so it's not terribly helpful. But you know, I, I think that we were all, of course, we all did Carl Flesch. So okay, you kind of skipped to that part. So when you <laughs> huh? Well, the Carl Flesch scale book. I mean, that's yeah, kind of that's what many people consider the standard, and it's it's also a very complicated book, I would say. So, what what do you mean you all did Carl Flesch? I mean, you, that was, you know, that was assigned to us, so. 
Oh, you mean you hadn't done it before you got to this class, but... No, no. I mean, that was the scale book that the delay students used. So, that's what we used in the scale class. Oh, okay. What can you remember if you back up from that to your, your, your first exposure to playing Carl Flesch scales? I mean, I just remember getting yelled at about how do you play the beginning of the scale? Because that's like the weird thing about it, right? To go uh, up the third mean... and then come down and then go back up. Okay. So, that's the Galamian... This is kind of interesting. Oh, by you the know way. what? Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not in the flesh. In the flesh. <laughs> maybe it's not printed in there. But like, maybe I would like make the mistake of trying to do it as printed, and I get yelled at. And, okay. and they're like, no. And we always, yeah, do the third and then come down. So you know, if you've done the scale method before, you'll you'll know this. But this interesting trivia, especially since Ivan Galamian and Dorothy Delay, they they used to be tight, and then they had somewhat of a falling out and went their separate ways. But it sounds like maybe she retained this bit of scale work from him. So, he discovered or at least promoted the idea that if you added a couple extra notes to a three octave scale going up, you'd have 24 notes and 24 divides very neatly into two, three, four, six, and eight so that you could... I'm so dumb. I'm like sitting here listening to you. I'm like, oh, that's why I added those notes. Well, no yeah, wonder. You, and then like anytime I try not to do it that way, I'd be like, why am I ending up with like this weird number of notes? notes. <laughs> well, now I don't do it. I mean, I'm it's dumb. I guess it's clever enough, but I I don't I don't really like playing scales that way anymore. So so now you think you either tried to do it that way or tried not to do it that way, but whatever it was, you got yelled at. Yeah, I think there's a lot of yelling at. I think that was sort of Okay. So yeah, that then that's how I all right. Well, that's the Galamian scale beginning. So it's possible that we Starts started with yelling. doing yeah <laughs> extra notes and yelling. So maybe we started playing some three octave scales around the same age. For me, it was only in that one key until I had Dan's help with it. So, so no wonder you look sort of like not particularly impressed when basically start every day with a D major scale. I've graduated to E major. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I feel like I used to start every day with like, like anytime I would start playing like D major scale. And then I feel like <laughs> you'd always have this look on your face. Like I probably should be doing something else. Well, I, I can't believe I had any look on my face. So when am I standing around watching you play scales? Yeah, I just, you know, had the feeling. So now, now I understand it's because it was your go-to when you were 10 years old. Oh, I mean, D is the, you know, it's the most resonant key. I think if you're going to practice one, it's probably yeah, yeah, the best yeah. one to do. I like E. Yeah. <laughs> Puts me in a good mood. So, you, you can't remember anything else from that class, huh? Yeah, you I'm, really, you, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my memories are so, so I just, stunted. This concept of a scale class, but I mean, well, I mean, now that's, probably... that's what I like to teach. So, I'm just madly curious about what yours was, but maybe we'll need to put you under hypnosis or something. I mean, I think... To... <laughs> You know, get the Dilbert creator in here. I think it was mostly because the lessons were supposed to be for lessons and master classes were supposed to be for repertoire. So I think this was sort of to remind us like you are not to overlook scales and the, you know that they are important enough to have their own class. And I mean that that's a great message in and of itself that we all basically just ignored. But right, and incidentally, I feel like that's a good point you make that yeah, lessons mainly for repertoire, learning and polishing repertoire. And you know, that may be, especially if you have a scale class on the outside or, you know, one of the old world systems was kind of, yeah, the, the main, the master teacher would be for the concertos and all of that and then maybe sonatas. But then the assistant would handle more of the yelling, the scales, the etudes. 
I find that's a problem at a lot of music schools, you know, of course, where you only have one teacher and... Oh, you mean there's not enough division of, of labor of teaching? Well, there's just not any attention paid at all to scales and etudes, oh, you know, I think... Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, personally, it's I'm shamefully ignorant about what technique, what bow techniques, what left-hand techniques line up with which etudes. Well, I think you've, I mean, fortunate is not the right word because you've worked super hard for a long time and you have great instincts. But I mean, you don't necessarily have to know that if those techniques work for you <laughs> as they do for you. You know, I think when it's a problem is when you have a problem in a piece or when something comes up in a piece that there's a technique that you just haven't learned or you haven't done in a while, and then you can get a little stumped as to how to go about it. I think then, and certainly if you're a teacher, then it's necessary to know <laughs> how to go about it or what etude you can assign someone to to strengthen that for them. But yeah, I mean, at most music schools, yeah, the teacher basically has to default to getting someone through repertoire so that they can play juries and recitals and competitions or whatever. And there just isn't time in those, whatever you get 12 lessons in a semester, there isn't time to go over etudes. And it's almost kind of, I remember I had a friend when we got into Curtis, you know, at this guy's first lesson with a different teacher from my teacher, first lesson, the teacher said, oh, you need to go and study this uh, Gavinier etude book. I want you to come back and bring that next time. I remember thinking, Ooh, thank God that's not me. I'm glad I'm past that. And little did I know it would have done me a world of good. But at the time, yeah, the stigma was like your etudes. Yeah, that's that's what you did when you were like a teenager or a 12-year-old. Yeah, I guess there was some of that. I mean, I never would have thought of doing Kreutzer later in life, even though it's certainly, I mean, like that's ridiculous. I mean, there's there's a lot to be gained from those, you know I mean? Well, yeah, I, I know that for sure now. I mean, I, I worked through a great deal. I would say the majority of the Kreitzer book with Dan as, as well as Sevjak and Schreidek. Uh, a lot of the others we named, I didn't do. Wolfart, Yost, Matzas, Demerio. What's Hermali? 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 Yeah. I, and all these now I've since gotten to see and I've enjoyed working through some of those too. And Simon Fisher, he also hasn't, it's not etudes, but it's like... Right. He doesn't have a straight etude book. I mean, exercise. he's written a number of weighty books um, that deal with, well, a whole number of topics. And I love Simon Fisher and his books. And um, I mean, yeah, I think I, we already talked about the time I broke down crying after trying to do his warm up. <laughs> warm up. <laughs> I love the warm up book. Well, yeah, hold, hold that thought too, because opening up an etude book, trying to play one and just either whether your reaction is just stopping and closing it or breaking down crying is actually a pretty common thing. <laughs> uh, well, have you seen that a lot? People start crying. Well, I haven't seen a lot of crying in lessons. I've seen some. I think I started crying during the Muskowski the other day. Oh, the the duo? Yeah. And we were rehearsing and I was like, I got... You and me. Yeah. I got, remember I got like kind of carried away with that one spot. I couldn't come in right. And I was just like getting really mad. I think oh. there were double stops. I think I was overwhelmed by double stops or something terrible. Oh, well, should have suggested an etude right there on the spot. That would have made, I'm sure. <laughs> that would have made all the difference. Now, sure I think perked uh, up right away. I'm guessing that was a, a hard day with the kids and then we tried to rehearse at the end of it. Um, or I just couldn't play it. 
As far as the etudes, you know, yeah, I, I worked through so many of those with Dan Mason and then promptly forgot, I think, the work that, that we had done on them and, you know, the why, basically. And I kept the books as you did, you know, tattered copies of etude books. And, you know, then, and this is before we knew each other, I had a job in orchestra in St. Paul. And, you know, at that same time, I guess you would have had your job in L.A., but I, I remember just encountering some orchestral pieces and thinking, this is really hard. And I, I kind of don't feel the word that came to my mind was equipped. I don't really feel equipped to play these pieces as fast as they need to go. I think that's what bothered me. You know, I, conductors would set these tempos and I would think, yeah, man, this tempo seems a little ridiculous, but still I should be able to play it. It's hard to imagine you having a problem, but yeah. Well, but I, I, I don't like to admit that even now. Sure, I mean, the same thing might happen now, but it happened more then. And I started realizing, yeah, there's some weaknesses here. But at that time, my, my idea was just practice harder or practice more. And may make you laugh to think now, but there were a lot of days in a row where I would actually lock myself up and practice four or five hours a day. I just didn't have much else going on. So I thought... That's when great strides are made. What's that? That's when great strides are made. You don't have a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, it kind of worked, of course, if two hours is good, then four hours is going to be somewhat better. But but I actually didn't feel like, like I was... It sounds very Orwellian. Two hours good, four hours better. <laughs> is that... That's Animal Farm, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it ever goes the other way. No, no one decides that, you know, four hours good, two hours better. Right. Well, that, I sort of feel like that describes, I mean, you've become so efficient at practice that for you, actually two hours is better. There is something to be said for that. Sure. If you can get done in two hours, what it used to take you four hours to do, then yeah, do that and spend the other two hours listening to recordings or. Yeah. But like most, I mean, I personally, it's like I, if I can say I practiced four hours, I feel so good about it. That gives my, my confidence a boost. <laughs> Well, Even if I most like, it's just, it was two hours worth of work inflated to four by, you know. Hey, that's a powerful thing too. Yeah. I mean, if you go into a performance believing that you're the best prepared and that, that might be because yeah. you spent the most time or, or maybe you just worked through a whole bunch of like doing scales for an hour a day, if that's important to you and that gives you confidence and you have the time to do it, then. I think you mentioned that once to me, like maybe you should try playing, I don't know if it's an amount of time, like, oh, do thirds for like. 15 minutes a day or half an hour a day or something. And I tried to do whatever your prescribed time or number of keys was. And I mean, I still do, but I just, you know. That was straight from a Ruggiero Ricci book actually oh, okay. on the left hand. I, I somehow got, now I can't remember if this is what he said verbatim, but I got the idea. Maybe he does say it. I got the idea to do thirds for 20 minutes a day. So, I did that for a week and I felt great. So, you know, I think at the time what I took from that was, oh, I just have to do thirds for 20 minutes a day. I mean, now I know the lesson was something a little bit different. I definitely had a lot to learn about thirds and that was one way to do it. And that's kind of like the story I wanted to tell about my very first lesson at Curtis with uh, Felix Gallimere and him. He didn't even want to hear the concerto I'd brought in, which was Prokofiev too. He said he hated that piece. And even though that's what I'd been working on the whole summer to play for him. He <laughs> actually refused to hear even the first bar of it. Hmm. 
He wanted to hear me play scales and because I didn't really have a good scale system, he was greatly upset. You know, he had studied with Carl Flesch. So the fact that I didn't know Carl Flesch's system bothered him again. He was 85 years old and I think um, yeah, he didn't have a lot of patience left. Wait, so how did you do scales before that? You just like... You know, I, I didn't do them much. Dan had me, you know, at least switching keys, but you know, I just kind of play a scale and I think I might have played major and minor arpeggios and I would have done, I'm sure if he was keeping close tabs on me, then I was doing thirds and maybe octaves, but certainly not every day. Not if I thought I could get away without doing it. But at that first lesson, Galamir told me, you need to play all 24 keys every day, including all seven of the flesh arpeggios and thirds, sixths, octaves, and fingered octaves. I mean, I think he saved your playing, right? Well, I'll never know because I, I did what he said for the first week anyway. And well, let's assume we started in similar places. <laughs> you could have ended up like me. So I can, I'm pretty, pretty much sure that he saved your play. I would be thrilled to end up like you. So, but I'm sure he did save something. But, you know, in that, just hearing that laundry list of stuff to do times 24, that first week. It Again, took I mean, me, you're a curse. Wouldn't, you know, that's what you're supposed yeah, to be doing. What else are you doing? Well, that was true. So, I, th I thought, well, it's my first week here. I'm not already going to admit defeat. So, it took me four hours to get through that. <laughs> but I did it that first week and I didn't really have any repertoire that I was supposed to work on. But I was kind of disgusted. I thought I can't really keep this up for more than a week. And so, I came back the next week and played some scales and he seemed mollified anyway. I didn't ask if I should keep doing that. I just kind of pared it down to three keys. And I've done something like that ever since. But yeah, the lesson again wasn't that obviously was not that you should be doing scales four hours a day, but that if you haven't been doing them as I hadn't, then there's a lot you can get from it. Better yet, I think is <laughs> knowing just what you, you should be doing and having some guidance as to what that is. But yeah, no, I mean, it really opened up my hand, opened up my ear and built a better work ethic, at least temporarily. Can't say that I always kept that. And then as far as etudes, where were you at this, but like, let's say at the point that you went off to, off to school. And I don't, I mean, you went to, you didn't go to conservatory for undergrad since you went to Harvard, but let's say that by the time you went to Juilliard for grad school, I mean, had you, had it been a while since you'd really played etudes? Cause yeah, for me, when, by the time I got to Curtis, it had, I think been a few years since I'd done Kreitzer, for example. I mean, by the time I got to Harvard, had I been doing yeah, let's look at it either that or grad school, Juilliard. Well, you know, I mean, of course, that's a huge source of problems for me, I think, when I look back because, you know, I, I didn't do, I mean, it was great not being so focused on music anymore when I got to college and that, that was the plan. I wasn't going to do it anymore. I wasn't going to, you know, and I, I didn't expect to enjoy chamber music, really. I didn't really know what it was or, you know, but right away, like I had quartets lined up and then then you start playing this great music and so while I was really enjoying music making in a way that I hadn't before I also wasn't buckling down with the kind of rigor and intensity that probably would have benefited my playing you know so by the time I went off to school you know I'd, I'd done some Paganini but again it was it felt like a little bit of a just sort of like a winnowing moment for me like I couldn't couldn't really do it so 
I wasn't going to be a virtuoso. I wasn't, you know, no one thought I was going to be a soloist, but that was sort of like the flourish on the, you're not going to be a soloist. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't do this. So, you know, I, I was happy to just get away from it and be like, I'm not going to worry about that stuff anymore. You know, and I, I don't think I thought about Paganini Caprices until like maybe when I got to grad school. Oh, oh of course for auditions. You know, that was really scary because I had to cough up. You know, it was really like a couple <laughs> You're talking of, about auditions for grad like school? a couple of hairballs and acid. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, because I took my LSATs and that wasn't going great. And then I had to magically come up with like audition repertoire for, for schools. And that was a semi-disaster. You know, I mean, I remember <laughs> at my Juilliard audition, they asked to hear my Caprice. <laughs> I forget which one I played. It's one of the ones that starts slowly. And I think I played it yeah, slower always, and slower. <laughs> like, please do not let me get to the fast part. I mean, I just, you know, obviously to hear me tell it, it sounds like I basically crawled underneath the barbed wire at all. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Some miracle mirror came out unscathed. But so, yeah, I was really, that was scary. And then um, honestly, I think, you know, I got to grad school. So magically, you know, I, I was waitlisted at Juilliard because they probably wanted my money. <laughs> and uh and i went they still want your money they still it hasn't changed and i i got through grad so i concentrated i said i gotta get a job because you know the plan was i gotta get a job where it's law school so you know <laughs> i was like, really focused on getting a job and you know i have to play paganini caprice to get a job so um mm, i didn't yeah. do that and then you know so I, I think once i met you i mean maybe so I, you know i came to la i was still taking auditions. I was practicing audition repertoire, but I was still very like, oh, you know, I don't really need to do that kind of thing. Um, and then etudes. Yeah. You know, I need to work on the exterior trappings of my playing, you know, and that uh, that's like a separation that's somewhere I've made in my mind even till now, or, you know, especially back then because I was taking auditions, there's like the exterior and interior functionings of what you're doing. So, you know, I'm, extremely insecure about the interior workings because there was such a hiatus and there was like a definite whole segment of things that I should have worked on in my life that now I, it's that's probably literally too late. So, you know, there's that. I, I think once I met you, so, you know, in Chicago, I mean, I, of course I knew you, but once I started dating you and, and that was tough, it was like, here's this amazing player. And, you know, you, I would hear you practicing, I would hear you warming up. And I was like, this guy can play like anything and like I just want I wanted to be like that I was like well so what I can win these auditions but you know I'm not him like I don't have that thing where I can if they like did a cross section of your playing it would be like solid all the way through you know I'm like one of those hollow chocolate bunnies so <laughs> so I really felt like you know I, being with you was kind of like I need to address some of this and so that you know you you've heard my sort of sporadic attempts at catching up you know, which I still, I haven't really given up on even at my age, but, um, and it, I guess it's good. It's good that you inspire me. I mean, I think that I've had a little bit more longevity to my, my playing than I expected. I thought maybe at this point I'd be happy just sort of being able to play. <laughs> and I think I, you know, I, I can play a little bit more than, than that, but yeah, so, so that was, sense. that was your role in, in my development or hopefully ongoing development. I mean, I think a lot of people will be happy to hear you say that like you know you you figured it was too late and for someone like you to say that the weird thing is that i looked at you that way because you know i felt like there was a lot that i hadn't learned in a systematic way and i actually assumed that you had done all these etudes really young because of the way that you got around it looked so organized and sounded you know so beautiful and easy so i yeah i actually assumed that 
your training had been. <laughs> Maybe that's the point is that everybody assumes everybody else has got the inside info at the right time. I mean, you know, I think whatever people say about being a natural looking or natural setup player, probably that's that's probably true of my, my playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an awkward looking player probably, but no. But you know, I don't always think that translates to a real rigorousness of background and training, you know. But I think that kind of training can help produce that though. Oh, you know, of course. The by, the but by... I, I think it it's like, you know, the rectangles and the squares are <laughs> I sort of feel like, you know, just because you look like that doesn't mean you are like that, but if you have trained like that, you will look like that. Right. So it's like you can get there sooner, you can get there later, but that's one of the ways is by, you know, studying what great players do and then... And just imitating it. That's me. Okay. (laughs) You can do that. You two can be a hollow chocolate bunny. (laughs) Our kids get very excited about that come come April. I don't even think they've had a solid chocolate bunny. I don't think they make it anymore. No, they get excited about the hollow ones. Yeah. But like, don't you think they'd be even more excited about like... Like a, I think those are too hard to eat. No, like it'd be like a chocolate truffle bunny filled. Well, that, you know? that would be right. That would be great. That's, you're that's you're too that expensive bunny. for them. Well, you, you know, it's always been my belief that you can come back to these etudes and scale study and get that natural looking and that natural sounding playing. Some people don't need it. I guess there's some people that don't need to eat well to look great either. But, you know, that that's definitely been one of the fun things about working in the Virtuoso Master course. You know, my path coming back to the etudes, well, it came about because I had to record a whole bunch of them. I was, yeah, contracted to record a whole bunch of etudes in their entirety you know, to perform them. And I discover, I was embarrassed to discover that I couldn't really get through some of them. <laughs> in any kind of satisfactory way, you know, not, not something that was going to live how many years on ago? video. Um, I guess, you know, close to 10 years ago at this point. And yeah, it really revealed some weaknesses in my playing. And I actually ended up going back to Dan Mason, my old teacher to <laughs> kind of to ask like, well, is this supposed to be hard? Or like, why am I struggling with this Kreitzer? And, you know, I would show him a couple measures and, you know, he'd say, oh, well, you're you got to leave these fingers down or, oh, this, these fingers together work as a group or, oh, the point of this one is actually both speed, not, and I realized that every etude had a, a key to it, basically. So, if you just focused on that, then suddenly it became more obvious how to do it? Yeah, I, th- I think... It's I, like, a, I feel like there are physical exercises, like not to keep bringing up the gym. No, I think sometimes it's a really, like parallel. I hate when they tell you to do an exercise and you don't know, that sometimes it's not always obvious what muscle group you're working on. That sounds dumb, but I think there's a couple where... I hate that too. Like, what what am I focusing on here, you know? And good trainers, they'll come up and say, oh, you have to really squeeze the glute at the top of this or something. And you're like, okay, well, it's like a glute stabilizing exercise. But yeah, I mean, it's... I hadn't really thought of it for a violin. Like, oh, you know, if you think about it, it's a bow speed exercise and then suddenly you can Yeah, that's the whole thing. And I... (laughs) I I wasn't mad at him exactly, but I probably, I I remember making some comment like, well, did you tell me this 20 years ago or did you just wait till now to, and you know, yeah, yeah, we went over that. But, you know, I'm sure I forgot when I was a teenager and, you know. Yeah, it just doesn't mean as much to you because you just don't see the practical application as much. Right. And now coming at it from the other side, like, okay, I've worked through Paganini Concerto and, you know, I hope to work through it again, but. 
you know, I've, I've played all this hard repertoire and now I can look at the Kreutzers and see, oh, yeah, this Kreutzer connects the dots from something easier to Paganini. I mean, you know, Heifetz, for example, he really only is Schreidek, Sevjek, Kreutzer and don't. And then he said, besides those, you need to just be like after that, just play Paganini and concertos, you know, there's right. no point in playing more etudes, you know, this, this covers it. And I think whether you'd want to substitute one book for another in there, I think the point is you, you want obviously the shortest good path between beginner and advanced and right. And the weird thing is the Paganini caprices are not really etudes. No. I mean, they're showpieces. And, you know, yet the thing is that the more I played the Kreutzers and the more I looked at them, I realized you could, you know, they're, of course, they don't sound as flashy and they're not as difficult as Paganini. Uh -huh. But, for example, many of them feature lots of octaves and they may be octaves across, like not one, four octaves. They may not be double stop octaves, but they feature the octaves that you have to play fast. The thing is, when many people learn those etudes, they're learning them slow and they sound like kind of scratchy studies, but you can work those up to sound virtuosic. And when you do, that's when you learn the real technique behind the etude. And same for, you know, Kreutzer II is the most famous one. That's the one that Jack Benny played as the theme song for his, <laughs> his program. And, you know, there, there are a lot of Boeing variations that you can do with those. And yeah, you can do them slow and haltingly and they sound kind of weird or you can work them up to really sound good as they would in the repertoire. And I, I think that's that's the key for me for scales and etudes. Scales need to sound like they're parts of pieces. You know, you need to play them fast and in tune if you want to be able to play pieces fast and in tune. And you need to play them with different bow strokes, you know, slurred, but also separate and fast, detaché and fast and off the string and fast. Otherwise, your scales, your fast scales and pieces are not going to be in tune. I remember telling you once about, I guess it was for an audition and I said I was just terrified of falling off the fingerboard. I forget if it was like a specific thing or if it was becoming like a problem, like I had fallen off the fingerboard a few times. And you said you, just, you have to work on your arpeggios. You're right. Really? Yeah. I said that? Yeah. Because now when you say that, all I can remember is the, that was William Prusel's one big fear. Yeah. Apparently. And you told me that too. <laughs> but I, yeah, I remember thinking, you know, that you're totally right about that. And that's always the thing I, I say is nice and annoying about you is that like you, I can go to you with a problem. Sometimes, you know, it feels like I'm just sort of saying it just to get some sympathy or something, but you have, you have a solution. You're like, well, you need to do this or you I think need I'm to do that. I'm often described that way. Nice and annoying. <laughs> It's like, I just wanted you to say, yeah, I know that's hard. No, you, you know, it, it did really help. I mean, and on a number of occasions, but I remember that being like a technical thing that you said you need to, to do if you're worried about that and fast. You said you need to do them full tempo or whatever. I sound very preachy. Um, no, I mean, I, I asked you, right? So, <laughs> it wasn't like I was sitting here, you know, watching TV and you came up to me and you said you need to work on your arpeggios, <laughs> which one I probably would have not responded as warmly. <laughs> No, but I mean that, that yeah, there, there's a purpose for every kind of scale practice or there should be, um, otherwise it's basically wasting time. And with the etudes too, there's a key to every well-designed etude. There's a thing that you should be striving for, or in some, in some etudes, there can be multiple keys. You know, you can practice it with one tempo and bow stroke for one reason. You can transform it by 
doing it at a much faster tempo with a different bow stroke for a different reason. But once you know that key, then the etude really opens up. I mean, for example, Kreitzer 9, which is just a bunch of 16th notes and really fast finger patterns. You know, once you know that that etude's all about dropping two fingers and lifting one, then not only does it become easier, but then you're building that skill, which just, I mean, that comes up in every fast piece that you're going to play from then on. Ooh, sounds like I should practice Kreitzer 9. Well. Because remember my new, not my new, but my like resolution, the thing I'm, I've been having more trouble with. And it's so scary as you get older because it's like, it always reminds me of like the Godfather. <laughs> Everything reminds me of the Godfather. Wait, how? You know, like when, um, oh wait, no, is this Godfather 2? What am I thinking? It's, it's, do you know how they're going to, it's it's actually Godfather 2, sorry, because Michael says it. It's like, do you know how they're going to come at you, right? So they send you, says, yeah, they're, it's Montesio. Oh, that's the end no, of no, one. No, 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 that's one, of course. Kind of sound like a godfather novice here. You need to practice your godfather A2. I know. So. <laughs> Instead of practicing, I'll go put on the godfather. Yeah. And it feels that way with my, with your playing. I mean, probably all of us have that fear, right? It's like, what's going to be the the thing that that's going to deteriorate? That's going to be Ugh. like the, the tell that we're aging, you know? Oh, so, what's, what's it going to be? Well, for me, me so far at my age, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm starting to have some trouble or some real discernible trouble with um, quick notes no matter what position I'm in, right? Quick notes and <laughs> involve a lot of string changes. I think maybe it's like a mental thing. I'm having trouble getting mentally organized about where I am, like which string I'm on, which finger I'm on, and you know, and very fast, especially if exposed, because then you're more aware and more nervous about it. So, you know, I, I really it would be amazing if I could really start targeting that and perhaps stave off that particular assailant, you know, and I could maybe worry about, you know, maybe something else <laughs> will come at me some other way, but you know. Take you 10 minutes to lose that fear. Well, no, I mean, what, yeah, what well, you're saying well, is true. I've complained about this to you for every day for the past like year and now, now you tell me <laughs> in the podcast and 10 minutes from now, I always like, thought this could be 10 minutes. dispelled. All right, well, you know, <laughs> tomorrow it's going to be gone. Well, no, I mean, yeah, definitely when you have that foundation to fall back on, then yeah, the fears seem less scary, but yeah, fears come to me too. Maybe it, maybe it's foolish to seek solace in the etude books, but <laughs> that's what I've done so far. It's probably more foolish to not seek any solace. Well, whatsoever. it's definitely a topic we could go on about and maybe with more specific examples later on. But this obviously a topic dear to my heart. So, I appreciate you going on the on the little uh, journey down memory lane as far as scales and etudes. <laughs> it's real helpful. Wait, was it? Now I no, I can't I couldn't, tell if that's you couldn't come up with any any specific scale class memories. Oh no, but you know, other than my scale class, I, I think that, that says something too. <laughs> at, the, at that time, it just wasn't as meaningful as it as it is now. When yeah, you don't appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. Well, again, if you are interested in looking closely into that with me, or at least opening up a conversation about that, go to standpartnersforlife.com/vmc. That stands for Virtuoso Master Course be starting that up again in the new year. And I would love to talk to you about how that might fit into transforming your playing. So thank you, Akiko. You're welcome. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on Stand Partners for Life. <laughs> <laughs>